Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to the last episode of Season 7. It's episode 24. 24, believe it or not, since August 2021. And well, after 24, we if we get that far, we did it once, we always close the season and start a new one. This is the Thoth Hermes podcast. I am Rudolf, your host. I, I'm speaking to you from the outskirts of Austria's lovely capital of Vienna. And my guest today on this final season finale, let's call it like a final episode or season finale, is Patrick Dunn. Patrick Dunn, a well-known author of the esoteric, the occult, the magic. Uh, We will talk about all that with him in just a minute. Um, well, if you have come to join us here on the Thoth Hermes podcast for the last show of this season, well, welcome just as well. And no worries, we take one week break next Sunday. So next Sunday, February 20th, because today it's February the 13th. February 20th, there will be no new episode and we start a fresh season, season eight already. Wow. Season 8 will start on February 27th. And who will be my guest on that season opener? Well, you better tell you now. Certainly not. I will tell you at the end of this show in the outro talk as always. Well, those of you who follow me on Facebook already know because I kind of leaked the information what's going to happen with that season opening. So all better for you. And if you have not yet subscribed to the Thoughts Hermes podcast on Facebook or Twitter, well, it's about time to do that. And also you can do the same on the newsletter, the newsletter on the website, the website is thoughthermes.com. Very easy. T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S dot com. So there find all the links to all the shows we have produced so far. And all those links comprise also really nice show notes, which I really urge you to have a look at. It's become quite a base of knowledge, all that together. All those links to my interviewees, homepages, books, etc., etc., quite it's become yeah i'm happy it's quite impressive i'm happy today it's season finale it's a good moment to be happy and i'm also happy because we have really an ever increasing number of listeners that's really great last two weeks um beat records once again with greg kaminsky and then uh also with last week's guest who was last week's guest you remember Hmm? have you listened Yes, right. It was Peter Mark Adams. And uh, so I hope we will do just as well this week with Patrick Dunn. No reason why we should not. Talking about number of listeners, talking about um, 
your support to this show. What can you do for this show? Because we need you. A, listen to it. Speak about it. Tell others about it. And make this Thermis family ever increasing. It's really going well at the moment. Let's carry on like that. I'm very happy about it. And of course, that's because you carry the word and because we have great guests. And thanks to all the guests. I take the occasion of that season finale to thank all of you guests who have been with me on this show who have supported this show by your presence and by your intelligence your words and everything you had to say thanks so much i'm really happy about that well and how can you do something else for this show well we need your support we need you as patrons we have some patrons but um if I see the number ever increasing of listeners and on the other hand, the stable but very nice number of supporters, I need more of you. Um, well, I promise you, you, I will do and will have to do a, quite a nice Patreon campaign starting with season eight. We will have to do something about sustainability sustainability what a difficult word and um well i'll have i have some ideas i'll let you know starting with season eight um i'm gonna pester you a bit about that well i need you i think you understand if you want to be ahead of the crowd the big crowd um well become a supporter now and thanks to all the ones who already are supporters i really appreciate and i'm very grateful for your very continuous and very steady support because all our patrons are really really for the big major part are really long-term supporters and that's great that's wonderful and you do the job that should a bit be done by more of us out there so have a thought about it if you have not become patron yet go to the patreon site or to the thoughts Army's website and um, subscribe to the patreon button there would be appreciated okay enough begging now let's go and play some music you know i always like to play music and the music today is again i've had that before a few weeks ago seven or eight weeks it must have been um i'm playing music from a japanese rock band not the same not the same this time it's a band well the specialists among you probably know it's called the gazette was a band um, in the 2000s uh, was very famous and uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about it in the interval when we play the second piece because now I've been already too long let's right away jump into their music the gazettes they are called and it's a piece I have no idea if I pronounced that correctly Yuan Sai No Knife I guess No Knife is the translation of Yuan Sai I don't know, honestly. Whatever. Enjoy. It's hard rock. And my guest, Patrick Dunn, I think he told me he loves hard rock. So it's also for him and for all of you out there who love hard rock. The Gazette. Yuan Sai. No knife. Enjoy.
No Knife by the Japanese rock band The Gazette. And please don't blame me for the pronunciation. Right, Patrick Dunn. We are going to meet him today. And Patrick, even though he's been around in the magical world for quite some time, and even though he has published five books that have been highly appreciated, he's one of those silent guys. He's one of those guys who do magic, have always done magic, but don't talk much about themselves. They write excellent books, but um, it's hard to get to know much about their biography, their backgrounds, etc. Uh, well, we try to change that a little bit today by talking to Patrick himself. I've asked him also very personal questions. Briefly, he is from Chicago, Illinois, well, from the Chicago area at least. He is a university English professor of linguists who is a PhD in modern literature and language. He is a pagan, that's important for us, and he is a practicing magician, occultist, as he calls himself, since childhood, actually. And um, the study of symbols and of semiotics, etc., are very important to him. But in his books, he doesn't dress dry, he becomes very practical. And I think it's always good to let the author speak through their books. So, as I mostly do, I would also like to read you a few paragraphs from actually his first book. It's his first book, Postmodern Magic, that I personally also like so much. So um, I call I just read you something from the beginning of that book when he just introduced 
an exercise. I'm not going to read the exercise to you. That's not necessary. But I tell you and read to you what Patrick Dunn has then said about that exercise. I call the state of mind achieved in this exercise the magical state of consciousness. A hyper-awareness of the conflicting and contributing symbols of the world. Just as in the scientific method, observation is the first step. At this stage, we make our conclusions not from logical deduction, but from a hunch, feeling or intuition. In all such exercises, grounding is important. Without grounding, these experiences are empty and meaningless. We can ground ourselves by telling someone about our experiences, but we can also write them down, paint them, make music of them, or use some other creative physical activity. It doesn't matter what is painted or produced. We are recording, therefore grounding, the impression of an experience, not the experience itself. And this will help us develop the perspective of a mage. For more advanced exercises in which we open ourselves to otherworldly entities and energies, we will learn to cleanse and banish our working area. These acts, along with grounding, should become routine procedures of the conscientious marge. If you do this exercise with the proper sense of playfulness, you'll find a sort of communication existing among and between various sensory streams. For example, an overheard conversation might seem to reflect an interesting insight on an advertisement or magazine cover. Or, as often happens to me, you might hear a song or pick up on a specific sound that seems to comment on some problem in your life. Actually, this is an ancient Greek method of divination known as Kledon. I'll talk about this more later. And this brings me to a very important aspect of a mage's attitude. I speak a lot about fun and joy in magic. Simple magic systems open up opportunities for play, exploration and experimentation that more complicated strict systems do not allow. I do not clearly eschew complex systems of magic. In fact, most of this book is devoted to them, but even complex systems should rely upon the calm reality that magic is easy, fun and joyful. For me, magic leaves a sense of euphoria in its wake. It's not unlike the euphoria I feel after writing a poem or having sex. In fact, I sometimes call it post-magical euphoria. This sense of euphoria is the entire point of magic. Great words, I think. Right, and in that sense, let's now go and meet Patrick Dung close to Chicago. And just be careful, those of you who still believe it's Patrick Dung, D-U-N-N-E, the writer, the fiction writer. No, it's Patrick Dunn, D-U-N-N. Patrick Dunn, linguist, pagan, mage, writer, PhD, university professor, you name it. Meet Patrick Here comes the interview. It is my pleasure today for the Thought Hermes podcast to meet Patrick Dunn. Patrick, who I'm sure many of our listeners know, know by name, know his work, especially through his, I believe it's five books so far that you have published, Patrick. Is that right? 
Yes, five bucks on your call. Absolutely. So welcome to the Thoughts Hermes podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Absolutely. It took some time because I had to postpone twice and so, but I'm glad we finally made it. And as you just said, when we were preparing in those days, those things unfortunately happen more often than, than normally. So you... Um, are someone who I believe, I don't know if, if I'm right, but that's the feeling I get when I read your books and then when I did my research on you, who is not very present in the mundane world with your, with your person, with your, uh, how you became magician or how, how you see magic in general. That's something that uh, you can find a lot to read about with many authors. You seem to be a little bit more, um, silent about that. Um, uh, I kind of like that to be honest, but, um, I would love to take the opportunity to have you here on the podcast to change that a little bit, at least for those who listen to us. So Patrick, um, how, Did it all start for you? What, uh, how did magic, the magical world or the occult, whatever you call it, maybe also give us your name for that. How did it become part of your life? How did that happen? Well, my silence on that hasn't been, you know, like uh, keeping a big secret or anything. It just, you know, hasn't really come up much in my writings. Um, uh, although I'm, I'm working on a book right now where I do talk about it a little bit more, mm -hmm. you know, for me, It started uh, at a pretty young age. Um, I lived in a uh, small town with a Carnegie library, which um, basically Dale Carnegie put, built these humongous libraries in tiny, useless towns like the one I grew up in. Not to cast shade on my hometown, but <laughs> tiny sure, town. Sure, there are many um, of those, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so, tiny town with a brilliant, beautiful, huge library. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just assumed all public libraries were like that. So I discovered later they're not. But big pillars, you know, old, old polished wooden floors and a section on the occult, which was about this big. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, I was a, just a teenager, probably just on the edge of being a teenager. And I found this green book and I don't remember what it was called. I just remember it was green. And it was one of those cut and paste jobs that were very popular in the, in the 70s, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Uh, the sort of like, hey, here's a spell from over here, and here's something from over here, and what if, what if gin exists, you know, kind of thing. And I just devoured that book. In fact, I copied parts of it down um, for my own use, and uh, it was all essentially useless, but because it was all cut and there was no coherence to it, of course, uh, as a system. But it got me interested in it as a possibility. Like, what if some of this could be true? Like, what if? You know, I, I, did I think that I could cause scorpions to grow out of the heads of my enemies? No. But what, what if, you know, what if there was a part of the world that wasn't entirely visible? Mm -hmm. um, what if there were underlying connections be, behind things? And then I was fortunate as well that my mother was very open to this sort of thing. She had done some sort of new age stuff that was also very popular in the 70s, you know. Yeah, and uh, yeah. uh, So she sort of had books around and talked about things, although she is even now very skeptical, um, as am I. I I'm, I'm more of a skeptic, I think, than a lot of people when it comes to claims. Don't of you have to be, to be a bit of a skeptic to be a real 
Well, how do you call it? Magician, occultist, hermeticist? I, what do I you like call? occultist. occultist. Magician is right. good. Mm-hmm. Hermeticist is a little narrow. Right. That, but, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. but yeah, I think I certainly think it helps. Mm. Um, it's easy to get buried in one's own fantasies. Right. Um, or worse, in the fantasies of other people. And then you get yeah. then you get into conspiracy theory land. Yeah. And yeah. then there's chips in our vaccines and stuff. And, it, you know, that level of nonsense right. pervades the occult community, as right. it does many communities, unfortunately. Right. So I have a healthy dose of skepticism for all such claims, um, especially the supernatural claims. But I've also seen some stuff. You know, I've experienced some stuff that makes me think, yeah, there there is a reality to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I did experience some things when I was younger. I didn't really get anything to work until I was about, what, 16 years old uh, when I f- finally stumbled across Donald Michael Craig, like a lot of people of my generation did. Absolutely, I would say, yeah. I would say 90% of the occultists I know <laughs> have fond, fond or not so fond memories of working their way through that book one lesson at a time, as I did. And, one those, little, and those little libraries that you mentioned, I hear that regularly in people of your, our generations that maybe not all Dale Carnegie, but those little town libraries often had an occult section. We didn't have that over here in Europe at all. You know? No. And well, now, of course, you know, you go on the Internet and you're inundated with information. Sure. So, you know, we had little fragments of bad information with a little bit of good buried in it. And now it's just a deluge of good and bad. And again, you get back to that skepticism. You need some ability to, to tease out what's going to work and what might be harmful. Mm-hmm. But I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You were at about age 16. You said that you were yes. starting to make, make things work. So, and, and how did it develop from there? Well, I remember the first thing that I, uh, that really made me think, okay, there is something to this. Um, I wanted like a lot of 16 year olds, I wanted a job. And, uh, so I used the methods in Donald Michael Craig to make a talisman to get a job. A little, a little Jupiter talisman, you know, the, for the Sephira of, of, of Chesed. And, um, uh, and then I, I put the talisman in my wallet and went about my day. And my mother said at the time, um, or it might have been my father actually, said, you know, it's customary to actually go look for a job if you want a job. And I, I, I was like, yeah, I know. Um, but I didn't want to. And two, three days after making the talisman, we get a phone call. And it's the local pharmacist who wants to hire me for a position I didn't apply for as a clerk at his pharmacy. He had heard my name from a friend of his who said, I think he might be wanting a job. And I didn't even, you know, ask that for that job. And I got it. Fascinating. And and so when I hung up with him and told my mother, she was like, oh, my God, you got to make me a talisman. So it was a. Did you continue making talismans then? <laughs> yes, although interesting, I've kind of I've moved away a lot from uh, mm-hmm. that style of magic. I, yeah. I think a lot of people have in my generation as well. True. Um, you know, but it was the first time I got results, and I think I got results because I was finally getting my mind clear through the ex- regular exercises. You know, to to actually do something that had a system behind it. And um, did that carry on like that? Did you did you ever join groups and, and organizations? I, I don't play well with others as a rule. Um, <laughs> I'm a bit of a I'm a lone wolf, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did 
attempt to join some groups. Uh, I never got very far in the attempt. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, it's not that I don't like people. It's that I don't like the constraints of groups and often the, especially in occult groups, but many kinds of groups, the toxicity that leaks in as, as people begin, you know, forming alliances and enmities and so forth. And I just don't really want to be involved with that. Human nature. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't want to be involved too much with human nature. <laughs> right. um, at least not when it's hermetically sealed, no pun intended, hermetically sealed in that a little, you know, secretive yeah. group where yeah. it get, all those things get magnified sometimes and good things happen too, but sure. Yeah. So I never really joined a group. I, I got into chaos magic, um, uh, in the nineties again, like who most exactly. of my generation, <laughs> right. Cause it was the new thing, you know, sure. it was like, sure. I was like, oh, I don't have to learn Hebrew. Unfortunately, I already had, but um, not unfortunately. I, yeah. Learning Hebrew was actually another thing that got me into language and, and yeah. that sort of thing, which is also mm-hmm. important to my work. But uh, I got into Chaos Magic. Um, uh, I didn't join the, the IOT or anything like that. Um, but I... Uh, uh, but, you know, I practiced through college. Um, the Internet was now something I had access to. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot, lots of stuff on there, some of it good, some of it bad, some of it silly, of course. And, uh, you know, weeding through that and, and practicing and developing things there. And then, of course, I, I became interested in ancient magic, you know, the Greek magical papyri. So really, I mean, it, it kind of sounds like charting it sounds like the fads of every generation X magician that I've ever met. Right. That, that, that they'll all say they've been into these things in this order. It seems like to me. Right. Which, and what has it become particularly for you? Uh, but at some point, certainly one breaks off the mainstream. Each of us does and, and goes along their lone wolf path, as you just said. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that, but what is magic to you today? It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's become more integrated into daily life. And for me, it's a lot more now about relationships and connection to the, the for want of a better word, I guess, the spiritual world, the occult world. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the occult world, I mean the world of things that is hidden, not the, yeah. you know, people, yeah. people into the occult. Um, so, you know, a lot of my magic is... Uh, I think of it as kind of like maintenance, you know, it's, it's making an offering, um, not even necessarily to any specific spirits, just any who might be listening. And then, um, uh, going about my day with the awareness that the, you know, these spiritual forces have my back to some degree. Uh-huh. So then, you know, when it, when, when it comes time to do like a magical working, um, it just kind of looks like that, but a little more so it's, you know, there, there might be a sigil involved. There might be a, a bit of a ritual. A lot of stuff now is much more free form. Now that yeah. I feel like I have more of a connection to these underlying. So it's kind forces. of to keep your day to day awareness at the high level so that the step to performing a ritual is not that, not that big anymore. Right? Yes, exactly. It's not that I have to take out a whole bunch of stuff and get ready. Right. It's that I unfold my folding secretary desk and the stuff is there because yeah. it was there yesterday. Right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. It's part of your life, basically. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Which means that my entire house always smells like incense, but <laughs> occup- occupational hazard, I guess. <laughs> sure. Um, and then, of course, um, at some point, and you'll tell us when, the, the author, Patrick Dunn, became reality. So 
how how did that happen and which i think it's five books that have been published so far right yeah i think uh, i'd count yes five books yes and i believe the first one was magic power language symbol is, is that correct no the first one was postmodern magic Post that was the first one. Oh, that was okay. the first one okay yes yeah. and so we get into that in into those books anyway but especially in that one into more detail a little bit later but first how How did that happen? I mean, you don't just sit down and say, okay, hey, I write a book on magic now. Well, you can, but you probably don't get far. <laughs> no. Um, well, I was in graduate school uh, at the time working on my, uh, at that time working on my PhD mm -hmm. uh, in literature. And uh, it was actually, it was actually my dissertation year um, that I, that I wrote that book as well as my dissertation at the same time, <laughs> okay. which not a lot of people know. Um, that was not easy. I, I don't recommend that. Uh, <laughs> I don't recommend writing a dissertation unless you absolutely want a PhD. Uh, wor worst book I've ever written. <laughs> But, uh, uh, so I was working on that and I was working on this and I was also involved in sort of a, a message board online and uh, getting in all sorts of arguments. I was much more pugnacious, you know, mm -hmm. back in the early 2000s than I am now, I think. Yeah. And that, that would come as a surprise to people who know me online because they're like, he's really pugnacious, but much less now. <laughs> um, so I was getting in arguments about stuff and someone said, well, if you know so, so much, why don't you go write a book? And I thought, okay, <laughs> cool. So I wrote a book. Um, you know, I... It was too, that was that book is old enough now that I can drive in the United States. Um, you know, it's it's what 16, 17 years 16, old. Sixteen, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and uh, uh, so that was quite a while ago. And so you know, some of my approaches have changed a lot since I wrote mm -hmm. that book. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Some of my ideas have changed, although that book sort of lays out the foundations of when I started to break away from the, the received knowledge uh, of magic, the, the sort of idea that, you know, here's how it works. Um, and I kind of started moving away from that in, in that book that like lays the foundation for it. And then my later books really takes that idea yeah. further yeah. or those ideas further. Yeah. But I, I, I would agree. And uh, maybe we, we start going a little bit into that book. Um, it, it lays to me, a bit of foundation on on the later books that, that you wrote as you just said but also it it kind of opens and i find it very interesting also by its subtitle the art of magic in the information age it 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 talks about something and i would love if you to develop a bit on that for those who don't know the book um a foundation for that magic and occult workings change in the time and with the time that they are used um, because you don't practice magic in the same way that you did in the 19th or 18th centuries you can't because your surrounding have changed so maybe you can you can explain a little bit the argument of the book and and why postmodern magic what what is that for you um Yeah, the, the basic idea there is, you know, we understand the world through a set of metaphors that sort of act as a framework that we hang our ideas on. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, that right there was a metaphor to, to sure. explain metaphor, right? Sure. Uh, we can't escape it. Metaphor is a, a prison we live in, which is also a metaphor. Um, <laughs> you'll, go, you'll go mad if you keep following metaphors down <laughs> to the ground level. Uh, so, you know, I was introduced to that idea actually studying linguistics, uh, the work of uh, uh, George Lakoff and others in conceptual metaphor. 
uh, and of course he's not an occultist and does not, as far as I know, believe in magic. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I was like, that, that's interesting because we had these metaphors about magic, especially at that time, there, there was a lot of talk of like raising energy. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, it, literally speaking, there were people saying that, that it was literally speaking an actual physical energy that science hadn't discovered yet that we were raising. And I thought, well, if that's the case, it should have some measurable effects scientifically measurable effects, not, not just have effects in the way it changes the world, mm -hmm. but we should be able to convert it to other kinds of energy. Yeah. We should be able to power our houses with it, you know, and we can't. Um, uh, or, and if we can, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see the evidence for that. So that like, would be a good it. thing nowadays, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be wonderful. Yeah. Save a lot of problems right there. Uh, just just get a wick and circle together to chant and raise it from the power and <laughs> exactly. get the whole city lit for years. Yeah, it'd be wonderful. It'd Sounds be wonderful. good, yeah, yeah. But so I'm like, well, okay. So if that's if that is a metaphor, it's a metaphor for an experience. What other metaphors are there for that experience that might? So you know, one of the problems with metaphor is once you adopt a metaphor, you adopt all the baggage that comes with it. Mm -hmm. Once you say magic is energy, you you run the risk unconsciously of then saying, okay, so it's scarce, and I'm going to run out of it. I have to raise enough of it. And I don't think that's true of magic. So I thought, well, what else, what other metaphors are there? Well, there's the metaphor of communication. If magic is a transfer of information, you can't run out of it. It's not scarce. Um, it's not even physical. Uh, and then, it, it, you know, it, it raises all sorts of like, and I talk about in that book, if I recall correctly, because it's been a while since I looked at it. Um, but I talk about, it even explains some of the ways that magic works. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the... Uh, equations that describe the behavior of information explain why magic seems to work by coincidence. And I'm not saying that that's, that we can reduce magic mathematically or anything like that, because I don't think it's a science. But I thought that was a really interesting way to approach it. And so I kind of tried to do that in that book. In some of my later books, I got into a lot more depth mm -hmm. about that mm -hmm. as I developed those ideas. When you're talking about metaphor, is metaphor, is a metaphor a bit like a sigil or another symbol of magic that you can charge with something and that's why it becomes a bit part uh, uh, becomes a kind of its own life the metaphor yeah, it's interesting you use the word charge right because there's a word from from the energy yes uh, that's why i used it right. exactly yeah yeah so yeah i mean I, i think metaphors do in some in some way have their own life um it's One thing that people have said when they're arguing with me about that book is you say that reality is just symbolic. And I don't say that. Um, I say reality is symbolic. The symbol is real. It's not just symbolic because that would imply that there's a reality that is not, not just symbolic. symbolic. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think that's the case. I think that reality, at least in the phenomenolo phenomenological sense that we experience it, is just a set of symbols just I just a set of, I just did it Darn it. Um, <laughs> okay it's Play back. actually yeah. a set of symbols <laughs> yeah 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 our language is so tricky but you know <laughs> oh yeah yeah in a lot in a lot of ways language speaks us we don't speak language you know we were in many ways were shaped by it uh, which you could make you say language is a part of magic in its very own way right I, I would absolutely say that I would say that One, I think one of the reasons that humans are good at magic is because we are language beings. You know, mm. just like spiders spin webs, we yeah. spin language. Yeah. And I think 
something about the understructure of language gives it that ability to interact with reality on that deeper level. Now, let me open a little sideline here, because as you are a linguist, uh, you might have your own idea about that. Um, what part play different languages, I mean, English, French, German, and so on, in the application of magic? What does it do to a work, for example, like Eliphas Levy, to be translated into English, including the whole ceremonial part, um, what does that change to the magic that, that is done with it? I don't know, which is not a, not a good answer to that, but I, <laughs> I, I don't think anyone knows. Um, what, what's your take? You know, Let's from, put it that way. Well, from a linguistic perspective, every language is, is, is equal. There's no one language better than any other language. Uh, you can convey any idea in any language. Mm -hmm. um, But because language comes with so much context inherently that, that it, the pragmatic element of what a word means in a language is very different, uh, uh, that it seems like sometimes translation can be uh, a fraught activity because you're, you're, you're cutting off that pragmatic uh, connection. So let, let, me, let me think of an example, because that's pretty abstract. Um, well, let's say Hebrew, for example. So if I'm going to do the Lesser Banishing Ritual, the pentagram, we all know the Lesser Banishing sure. Ritual, the pentagram, right? Atagivur uh, Lalama Adonai, or Atagivur, I can't even remember it. You can tell I haven't done it in a long time. I did it daily for years. Uh, uh, if... if I do that as a pagan. Who is Ata, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that, that's a dyke that's a, that's a pointing word. It's, yes. it's the second person pronoun sure. you for yeah. those who don't know. So who is you when I say you are the kingdom? Also, I live in a republic, give or take. So when I say you are the kingdom, what kingdom am I talking about? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And I speak English, right? So if I say kingdom, that's kuning, uh, uh, boom. That's that's kuning. Uh, the that's the old English word for king. Kuning yes. mean, means um, uh, the 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 descendant of the kin, basically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's not that's not where Malkut comes from. Malkut no, comes not from at Malach. all. Not at all. Different etymology, different assumptions about what kinghood is. And in German, so, it's in German, it's Reich, which means the rule, the, the, the you know, the, the, the country, right? Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's, and I, it's a mistake to say that etymology is meaning because it's not. Mm -hmm. But when you're dealing between languages, there are assumptions between what those things mean. A king in English is not a king. A king in American English, especially, is not a, what a king is in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. It's not a, what a king is in British English. Absolutely. Mm. Right? And it's certainly not what a, what a Reich is in, in German. And will that have an effect on the magic? I don't know, but I suspect it might, right? Because I... Um, I mean, I've heard people who try to get fancy and then, you know, pagans who are like, Aten Malchut. Right. You, plural, are the kingdom. Well, now you got a different ritual there. That's not the same thing. And not to mention what you're what you're doing with, with the know, angel names. Judaism and, and so forth. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But it, 
that's not the same thing anymore. Mm-hmm. Or I've heard of people who are like, uh, instead of the archangels in the four quadrants, I'm going to put, I'm going to put the Egyptian gods. Yes. Cool, but that's a different that's ritual. That's a different ritual, exactly. Mm-hmm. Right, you're not doing the Athelastor Banishment or the pentagrams anymore. Absolutely. And there is another level while we are at that. Now, me, the musician, is also uh, talking here. But, of course, the pronunciation, uh, even of the same word, it might be different in English than when the German does that ritual, right? Uh, so the ata yeah. becomes ate mostly in German, right? Uh, because ah, we just yeah. we pronounce the same thing that we read in a different way. Um, how much, especially in invocations where the projection of the sound seems to be an important part of it because it's the famous energy that you were talking about. And how does the change of a vowel, for example, change the magic? Uh, I've experimented a lot with vowels. Uh, It's really interesting just intoning vowels in various combinations. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wouldn't say that I'm a musician, but I dabble with that too and and setting it to music. There's a lot of fun stuff to do there. But, but, you know, to get to the original point... um, people are always asking me about like ancient Greek because I do the ancient Greek translations and and they want to know how to pronounce it. And I, I, I always have to like take a deep breath because you just did. I don't don't know if you realize, but you just did take a deep breath. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's not an, that, that question is like, how do I pronounce English? Well, if you're in America, you pronounce it one of dozens of possible ways, mm-hmm. depending on what part of America you're from. Exactly. Right? And if you're in Britain, you pronounce it in one of a half a dozen different ways, depending on which part of Britain you're from. If you're in India, you grew up speaking English, possibly. You pronounce it completely differently. Yeah. You know, if you're, sing- if you're Singaporean, you speak a variety of English that isn't, you yeah. know, even necessarily comprehensible to an American all the time. Mm-hmm. So there is no answer to how do I pronounce English. And there's no answer to how do I pronounce Greek, for example. So... One of the things that baffles me about the Greek magical papyri is mostly those are those spells are written in Koine, which is a very old or a very a very new version of ancient yeah. Greek. It's yeah. the it's the sort of latest development of ancient Greek before it became demotic and then modern Greek. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the vowels have collapsed. Mm-hmm. So you know, Eta and Iota are both pronounced E mm-hmm. in in demotic or modern Greek. Probably they were getting there by by koine as well so you have all these long string of vowels that you just go e and i think well they couldn't have been doing that they wouldn't <laughs> have bothered putting an iota next to an eta if they just said e exactly right so yeah. so there must they must have seen some distinction there mm-hmm. in those vowels and and preserved an earlier pronunciation for for some reason mm-hmm. so i think it's probably not you know, so, some occultists will say, uh, and I won't name names, um, even though I like them, um, but they'll say it doesn't matter how you pronounce it, pronounce it how it's spelled. If you say chesed or chesed, it doesn't matter. Mm. Um, I wouldn't go that far. Cause, yeah. You know, there's multiple ways to pronounce chesed um, in, in Hebrew, um, but chesed isn't one of them. Mm-hmm. And also it makes me wince a little, but... I think if you get too hung up on pronunciation, though, then you get you go down a kind of crazy road where it's like if you don't pronounce these words exactly right, terrible things will happen. Yeah. No, I mean, we're, yeah. I always say the most authentic pronunciation of ancient Greek is badly because it was a second language for most people who spoke it throughout history. Exactly. Yeah, true. True. Yes. And it's it's like it's like the 
the intention is the important part probably as well, right? The intention that you use for pronouncing it and not the vowel in itself. It's like if the color of your robe in the golden dawn is not exactly the, the right red or blue, it won't work. I have a bit of, problem, of a problem with that as well. Well, I, I never go so far as to say intention is all that matters. But no, not all. Not, not mind, all that matters. Right, right. right, right part, certainly not. Say, yeah, no. But, well, if I were to try to speak German to you, which I won't because my German is awful, um, but if I were to try, I imagine you'd be very nice and try to figure out what I'm saying through my bad pronunciation, right? Um, uh, I speak Spanish a lot better than I speak German, and when I try to speak Spanish, people are very nice. Mm -hmm. You know, they, 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 they listen more closely to try to understand what I'm saying. And I expect the, the supernatural world is a bit like that, too. Right? <laughs> uh, they're, they're not they're not going to, to say, uh, oh, no, no, that Hebrew was incomprehensible. <laughs> yeah. um, That's a very, plus, of course, very nice comparison, I find. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've rarely, I've rarely run into anybody who gets mad when you try to speak their language, uh, even as imperfectly as I speak most of the languages that I speak. So the mid 2000 and postmodern magic, what what um, is postmodern magic in your terminology different from modern magic, for example? Modern magic, I think we should situate it in the time of Crowley, etc. If you put it in that period where modernism is called as such, right? So where exactly, where, exactly. where is it different from modern magic? Okay, so <laughs> my idea here is what characterized modern magic, and you're right, I'm, I'm, I'm think, when I think modern, I think Model T Fords, right? I think right. early to middle 20th yes. century yeah. is, is yeah. what I think of as modern. Yeah. Um, when, when you think about modern magic in terms of like modern literature and modern art, the thing that mattered was the form and the system. Mm -hmm. You know, T.S. Eliot in uh, The Wasteland has this line, uh, uh, these fragments I will shore against my ruin. Because he had this notion, and people did, they had this notion that civilization was collapsing around them. It was falling down. And as I tell my literature students, they were 100% right. Civilization, uh, a civilization ended in the 20th century yeah. Yeah. through most of Europe and the United States. It, mm -hmm. it and I tell them the proof of that is that none of you can read Latin and you're all supposedly college students. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, so they saw, they saw this need to build up a system to shore up the fragments and build a system. And so like the great occultists of the 20th century were systematizers, you know, Crowley built a system and then built another system and then another system, uh, Rigardi, you know, built a system. Yeah. Um, uh, even Manly P. Hall built the system somehow, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or uh, A.O. Spare, yeah. the, the yeah. Yeah. grandfather of chaos magic. There, there's a system there. It's hard to get at because it's largely weird and incomprehensible, but there is a system there. And I think that the shift then to postmodern magic, particularly magic around starting around the 70s and moving on into chaos magic, was... Um, a shift from that urge to systematize to an urge to take apart and rearrange the systems and experiment with not finding a system that, that did magic, but making 
sort of nonce system, systems for now, right? So, you know, chaos magicians invoking Mickey Mouse and Superman and so forth, um, uh, using systems. Well, I think, uh, actually, an excellent example of that, the way that the modern magicians approached Enochian mm-hmm. was this is a language. I will hear no discussion of it. It's a language. It's not a language. It's a language. And uh, we're going to make a system out of it. And, the, you know, if you look at the Golden Dawn uh, yeah. uh, papers on Enochian, oh, my goodness, did they make a system out of it? Especially if you go back to what Dee originally wrote, mo- most of that wasn't in there. <laughs> <laughs> all the tables and graphs and you do this call and you do this call and all that yeah. stuff wasn't in there. Um, then you have like the chaos magicians who are like, who are saying, well, Anokian's great and all, but it seems hard. Um, let's just make up random words by pulling Scrabble tiles out. We'll make, we'll make a magical language out of that. You know, Iranian barbaric, I think they called it. Right. And, uh, also not a language, um, uh, at best a jargon, but it, the, the idea was we're just going to even deny that we don't need all the angels and stuff. We'll just go with randomness and see what comes out of it. So I think that's one of the big shifts mm-hmm. to postmodernism and magic is abandoning, well, not abandoning, but deconstructing the systems. Thank you, Patrick, for this interesting talk. And now we take a break as we usually do. And uh, in the break, of course, I play you another piece of music, another piece by De Gazette, that Japanese rock band. And I promise you, I will tell you a few words about her now in the interval, because probably you don't know. Well, you probably do know about them. I have not. Uh, but then I'm not a specialist in that type of music. So anyway, it's a band that was founded in Japan in 2002 and she produced shows in the visual K style and um, first she was called um, Gazette from Cassette actually and then she, it was renamed in 2006 to the Gazette and um, well they existed basically into the early 2010s and then somehow they fell asleep again and uh, they did design projects and they had a very um, heavy metally rock style well you heard the first piece of music i picked maybe not two rough pieces by them for this show and um, so well so much about them we are gonna hear now a second piece by them uh, as always after the second piece we return directly to the interview to Patrick Dunn and continue our interesting talk with him. And at the end of the interview, right away, then is piece number three by the Gazette. Okay. So what you're going to hear now, first, the Gazette will perform for us here their piece called Leech. Leech. And um, after Leech, we go to Patrick Dunn and after Patrick Dunn, we return to the Gazette and then they perform their piece called Hole. Not a WH, but Hole, the hole, the one you can fall in, you know, the trap. Yes, the hole. Right. Okay. Um, good. So for the moment, it's Leech. But um, do not forget, after the third piece, after Hole, we are going to tell you, I am going to tell you, what is going to be the opening of season eight and you probably will like that 
So stay tuned until right to the end. And uh, now, the Gazette and Leech.
especially in Europe, in the arts world, um, um, the shift to postmodernism also is said to be happened because of World War II and all the chaos and breakdown that happened there. And you had kind of to build from scratch and you couldn't possibly go on with the structures that had existed before um, because they led into that. Right now, is the reaction of magic a bit triggered by the same thought or well probably because you can separate the mind of people but is is do you find the same argument in in postmodern magic i i'm starting to now right that it seems like in the last couple of decades mm -hmm. we're starting to see a lot of talk about uh wow the golden dawn was really racist um and you know they were um 19th century Victorian, you know, it was was a pretty racist century. Mm, so yes, mm, of course, mm. um, early 20th century is pretty racist too. Yeah, um, and but the, you know, there's a lot of like assumptions that were just glossed over until now in a lot of those writings. I mean, if you read *The Unfortunate*, now it's almost it, it's cringe-inducing. A mm. lot of it, it's like, mm. oh no, no. Mm -hmm. uh, um, that's not nice, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think we're seeing that sort of catch up, that rejection of those things. I think it took a little longer, though, in Magic, and I'm not sure why. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there are people running around, even today, using magical systems that have pretty gross content sometimes. Um, and I'm not saying the systems are bad, necessarily. It's just, it, it's probably wise to, to look at where this came from you know um maybe they are not questioned because some people think that magic is a thing that comes from the ages and must not be questioned oh yeah that's that's probably a, a major component of it right mm. the the yeah that we are um that, that it's a received knowledge that we're not to question yeah so you know we're, we're going to do what the golden dawn does even though some of it is based on some hmm. relatively problematic stuff. And I, I mean, that, and that whole thing can go very far. Now, you know, right now I sometimes see people saying, don't use tarot cards because they're a closed practice. And I, I have to raise my eyebrows at that because they're, they're literally a card game. Yeah. They're a card game that people repurposed for divination. Yeah. You can't close a closed practice that was never a practice <laughs> or, or wasn't originally a practice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't see how one can anyway. Yeah. Yeah. We'll come to the terror in a minute because now we have secretly moved on from postmodern magic to magic power language symbol, I think, with, with all that we discussed about language and vowels and sound. <laughs> and so that was your second book. Um, um, yes. I, can, I think it brought you a bit away from chaos magic, that second book, I mean, in, in the writing, right? I was already moving away from it, even in postmodern magic. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, think, I think it's the Czech translation of postmodern magic renamed it chaos magic oh, uh there's a check, like, check translation wow yeah. i believe so i believe it's yeah. Czech. maybe mm -hmm. it's slovak i've been translating well, a couple languages yeah, now yeah, yeah. um but uh yeah i like magic power language symbol it's one of my favorite books of my own <laughs> yeah it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun to write and i think what it do you like best really, about it well i think it, it moves it, it's a it's a little less tentative than my first attempt at saying, okay, what if it's like this? You know, what if it works like this mm -hmm. in terms of the information theory of magic? Um, 
and it was it was fun because then I got to research a bunch of stuff about language, which I always like doing. Yeah. I'm fascinated by language. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, well, good thing that you have that profession because that way you can <laughs> yeah. you can do what you like in, in your life. So li linguistics and um, magic is basically the subject of of that second book. Can we put it yes. like that? Um, but mm -hmm. still, I find that book extremely readable. It could be. It could become when you hear words like linguistics and semiotics and stuff that people could kind of think, hmm, uh, what do I do with that? I want to do my magic. But I, I must say it becomes it is extremely readable. So well, thank you. I, I mean, that's what I aim for. Uh, I don't want to write thick, incomprehensible books filled with scientific jargon. Um, I mean, I. I don't even want to write that as as a professor. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. I had to read too many of them. I don't want to add to the stack. <laughs> well, and then the, the third book was, I think, the practical art of divine magic. Right. So tell us about that one. What? I, yeah, yeah. I think that was the third book. That was the third. Yes, I, I think it was yeah. postmodern magic. Uh, start with magic, power, language, symbol was the second, and then divine yeah. magic. And after that is the tarot book, which we come to later, the normal right. tarot. That's the and order. and the fifth one is the Orphic hymn, right? Yeah, you would think I should know that being the author, but uh, well, uh, you're. I told you, you're a silent person. I have to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, but now you talk about the practical art of divine magic about that book. What what did trigger it, that, and what was it for you? Well, I was moving into to thergic practices. Um, so I'm pagan, you know, as well as a magician. And those two things aren't always the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. Especially uh, Hellenic paganism. Magic is not necessarily a part of it. There's even some people who wish it entirely. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, it's not forbidden. Some people say it is, but they're... So, so your paganism, to explain that, is Hellenic or uh, what yes. you practice, okay? Yes, mm -hmm. Hellenic. So, mm -hmm. uh, uh, for the most part, a little, little eclecticism, but yeah. just, just uh, seasoning. Mm -hmm. uh, And I, I, I became interested in, okay, what, what, what were the, the, you know, the exoteric practices of Hellenic paganism, the offerings and stuff. We know about that really, really well because uh, it's recounted on all sorts of places. But what about the, the esoteric practices? Um, you know, like as an analogy, and I'm not saying there's a connection between these two things, but as an analogy, you know, in Hinduism, there's the exoteric practices. You go to the temple, you make a puja. Mm -hmm. um, there's also the the esoteric practices of, of yoga and, you know, bhakti and, and these spiritual practices. Mm -hmm. And it seemed interesting to me to see if there's a, a corollary. And of course there is, it's the practice of thergy, um, the, the practice of God work, mm -hmm. the use of magic for divine enlightenment. May I briefly interrupt here? I always like to ask intelligent people about definitions because theurgy is also one of those words like Gnosticism or whatever, where you have about 3,500 different definitions. Could you give us your, or what you believe to be the correct definition of theurgy? Well, I'll give you my definition yeah. of thergy. I'm not going to say it's the correct definition of thergy. I think in certain yeah, contexts, yeah, yeah, okay. other, other definitions yeah. could work too. But I think uh, thergy is the application of magical techniques to spiritual development. Mm -hmm. To say that again? The application of magical techniques to spiritual development. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we have, you know, these magical techniques, like for example, making a talisman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Long, long history of that in all sorts of magical traditions. 
well, what if I made a talisman that represented and embodied a god? Well, that, that's actually discussed in, in um, the, the Hermetica. The, the last chapter of the Hermetica discusses how to do that. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's, there's all the internal practices of meditation and stuff and magic. Those also exist in Thurgy. And so is, is Thurgy for you a, a sub a subcategory of magic in general? Or is yes. it a parallel thing? I, I would say, well, I don't know if sub, yeah, parallel is probably a better way to put mm. it. it, it. It's an application of magic. An, Just like yeah, an application, magic, you yeah, job, yeah, yeah. You yeah. can apply it to spiritual development. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that book is about, you know, doing that in sort of a uh, um, concrete, practical way. And it's very much centered, if I remember well, on the, the Eastern Mediterranean ancient times, right? So about the Hellenic period, actually, Egypt, Greece, Rome, partly. Is that is that it, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So basically, I take, uh, you know, from, uh, well, a, a lot of it is based on the, the right, just because of what we have is a lot of it is from late antiquity. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, the post-Hellenistic uh, period. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, as you said, toward the you know end of Rome. So you know, I, I kind of think of it like third, fourth century is, yeah, is yeah. the real the real meat of our understanding of theurgic practice. I'm sure it's and we know it stretched well beyond well well before that to, to the pre-Socratics. We just don't have much good information. Well, you read my mind because I was going to ask you, but in both directions, what happened to the, in your opinion? Of course, there are. Dozens of books we could read about that, but uh, your opinion in you being a specialist of that interests me. Um, we always shed light on two periods, basically, on that period that you just mentioned, second, third centuries, uh, Hellenic, post-Hellenic period, um, where those movements have been visible and strong. And then again, starting with Ficino and Mirandola in the, 15, in the 16th century, since 15th, 16th centuries, and, and before the Hellenic period and in between those two periods, there is kind of um, scientific darkness, so to speak. Um, in your opinion, um, what happened before and after that Hellenic, post-Hellenic periods? Uh, Well, I think with the, the cause of that scientific darkness and the magical darkness and I wouldn't say philosophical darkness because you did have, you know, these bright spots of philosophy um, in, in, in uh, 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 you know, in, in the classical period. Mm. But I think what the cause of that silence was just a lack of communication. Mm -hmm. um, it, people were not talking about ideas. What, what distinguishes late antiquity is this bright spot, especially for like magical practice and stuff. And, you know, in late antiquity, a lot of historians paint late antiquity as like a time of decline where people were believing all sorts of weird stuff. And I, I see it differently. I see it as kind of a fecund period of mixing of ideas from all over the world. And what caused that was, you know, the rise of Alexandria. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say it you was know. a period where the East and the West had a lot of encounters which they didn't have previously nor after, right? Right, exactly. And so you have Alexandria, you have, you know, one of the most powerful cities in the world with people coming in from all over the world. And, it, it, you know, it's famous for the library, of course, uh, but the library just represented a culture of knowledge. Mm -hmm. 
um, that there was a supposedly a practice. I have no idea if this is true or not, but there was a supposedly a practice of any ship that docked at Alexandria had to give a full report of any books they carried on board. And if the books were not recorded in the library, those books were confiscated, copied, and the copies were given back. Oh, really? <laughs> kept the wow. I don't know if that's true, but I read <laughs> A that. nice story anyhow. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it exemplifies the culture yeah, of, sure. of, of this desire to gather and share knowledge, yeah, yeah. which I always think of the Antikythera device, you know, this beautiful bit of clockwork at, that, that we dug up in a, in a shipwreck. Um, very ancient, well before the invention of the differential gear, but it contains differential gears. And I, I always, you know, what, what, why did that not just revolutionize the world? Well, it didn't revolutionize the world because no one talked about it. Mm. I have a cool gadget. I'm going to take it over my ship. And then, you know, yeah. um, or the, you know, the, the, the steam engine of Hero of Alexandria, um, that, that could have really changed the world, it's except weird, yeah. no one picked it up. No mm. one shared it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's what parallels that same period of fecundity mm-hmm. in the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Now we have connection with the world again. Now we're sharing ideas again, and we're open to the sharing of ideas. Would you make, I mean, I find that an interesting thought to see parallels between well, let's say it in a very modern way, international communication or international exchange and um, the development of occultism and magic. And would you see parallels uh, throughout history in that? I mean, I see those two parallels, certainly. Um, I think when you think of the, the magic revival of the 19th and 20th centuries, again, now communication becomes easier, you know. Um, I, I have some high hopes for the future. Everyone, everyone likes to wax uh, very doom and gloom about the Internet, and the Internet is filled with terrible, terrible things. But it's still new. It's still very new, and it's still shaking out. It'll be really interesting to see what happens with the sharing of ideas made possible by the Internet um, in the next 200 years. And because you're saying that, I, I take the opportunity to say something. I don't think I've ever said it here on that podcast, but um, that this podcast exists. The reason is the internet, not only because you and I can speak over the internet, uh, that, that's one major reason, but the community that gathers around here wouldn't be able to gather worldwide, right? Um, if that wouldn't exist. And I must say, um, I have practically only positive experiences with my bunch of people here, which are Mm -hmm. several thousand and I have hardly any bad, um, how should I say, you know, those, those weird things happening that you see on the internet all the time. So probably the occult community should be happy that the internet exists. Yeah. 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 I think uh, it's also giving us a chance to to challenge each other, you know, about our ideas and our preconceived notions where the old system of lock yourself in a, uh, uh, a closed group and don't communicate the secrets to outsiders. I don't actually think that's a good idea. I think that's what leads to stagnation. And that's another reason why I don't play well with others. <laughs> I don't like oaths of secrecy. Yeah, I'm, I'm under I'm under one oath of secrecy about one thing, and that's it. Yeah. I'm not taking any more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean, and I think that's one of the aims that occultism should put forward and should be very aware of because it's part of it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Let's jump to book number five because I would like to 
uh, given the subjects, I would like to do it in that order because we were now with divine magic a bit yeah. in in Greece and in the Hellenic world. And of course, when we go to the Orphic hymns, which is your latest book, I think it appeared in 2020. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, I would. Uh, uh, it was it 2019? Or 2019. The last few years. <laughs> blended together unpleasantly so yeah 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 well for all of us <laughs> yeah, yeah. i'm looking right now yeah i think with, yeah i think you're right it's 2019 oh, 2018 18 actually. already yeah. wow yeah time wow. flies um the orphic hymns a beautiful book um not the only one about the Orphic hymns lately, um, but certainly one no. of the most beautiful ones. But that's my first question. Why suddenly the Orphic hymns seem to see that revival? What's, what, what's triggered that? I have no idea. But it, I mean, for me, it was, wow, I'm really tired of using the Taylor translation. <laughs> and the Athanasakis translation, well good in some places doesn't really capture what I'm seeing in the Greek mm. in other places. Um, not to say it's a bad translation. I just, he had different assumptions, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I thought, well, I know Greek and, uh, I've got time. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll just do a few poems, you know, just a few of the hymns, see if my publisher likes the idea. They probably won't. And my publisher loved the idea. Of course they did. And, mm -hmm. uh, uh, they loved it more than I did, and so I was stuck uh, translating <laughs> all of the Orphic hymns, which was a, a major undertaking. Uh, so, you know, sure. for me, it was just a, it was just a frustration of not having a translation that I could use in my own work mm -hmm. that I liked, and uh, so I. But I, 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 when just before my book came out, uh, Sarah Mastros, from I think you've had, had I had her as a guest. Yeah, yes, yeah. she she announced her her translation, and mm -hmm. I was like, oh no, I'm so angry. <laughs> but we talked, and uh, she's she's wonderful. Her translation is wonderful. Um, uh, it's it's more poetic. Than uh, mine, I, I was going to say more, it's more it's freeform. rather different from your translation. I, I yeah, I mean, the, my, different is, in the in the in the aim, in the sense, right? Right. She, she was aiming to capture more of the spirit. Right. And so she's a little more freeform mm. about it. Yeah. Um, I, I was trying to kind of capture what it says without being so dry as Thanasakis can sometimes be. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, you know, I always say everyone should buy both. <laughs> true, true. And I think there's... I, I mean, I, I use hers and I use mine. So, and yeah. go quickly because there will be a third coming out in, in, in a few months from what I hear. Uh, I heard about that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, well. Um, but I mean, on the other hand, uh, you would think it was about time that that happened, right? Because they seem to be at the center of so many things. It's one of those those uh, those things that you always hear about, but you never read, you know, as, as an occultist. And the good excuse so far was always, well, hmm, the translation is so bad, but now that excuse has vanished, right? Yes. Yeah. And now you have several very good translations to choose from. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I think there's also just a, maybe a, a, a critical mass of people who are educated, um, who have an interest in this. Yeah. Uh, the, the world of academia and the world of the occult has very much been separated for most of the 20th century. Now there's, there's more of us in academia who are, feel a little more comfortable coming out and saying, yes, I, Absolutely. Study this stuff. That's a subject I encounter a lot lately here on this podcast with people like Carol Cossack, who, had, who I spoke to a few weeks ago. And, and, and so that's also something that's a steady component of our talks, uh, that academia and, and magic finally 
openly speak about each other. And I think they've always right. worked together, but it's it's open now. You always had to pretend that you didn't really believe this stuff. <laughs> exactly. You, know, you were going yeah. to write about it. And you always right. had to have a little condescending tone. Yeah. And now that condescending, that, that condescending tone won't fly. Mm -hmm. you, you have to recognize that people do believe this. Absolutely. And they have, even if you don't, you have to respect that they do. In, in your personal point of view, what is so special about the Orphic Hymns that makes them important in, in literary history, but also in the history of magic? Well, in literary history, I mean, I kind of agree with Athanasakis that as far as poetry goes, they're not very good poetry. Um, they're, they're, uh, they're more, I think they're more utilitarian than, than, for example, the Homeric hymns. Probably, I mean, maybe they were recited as hymns, but I think they're mostly meant to be a poetic exercise, mm -hmm. you know, in, in a hymnic form. Mm -hmm. um, these, I think, were designed to be recited. And, you know, the evidence for that, they're short much shorter than the Homeric hymns on, on average. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're strung together out of epithets uh, in an almost formulaic fashion. Mm -hmm. So a lot of oral poetry uh, is, is formed through these set formulas that are sort of stacked next to each other. Mm -hmm. So you have, you know, the gray-eyed goddess Athena shows up again and again, not because Homer was really into her eyes, it shows up again and again because that phrase happens to fit a common metrical pattern that occurs again and again in the lines. Okay. So it's an okay. easy way to just plug and play right. if you're going to be composing orally. So that's some evidence. Uh, Perry and Lord, uh, when was that? That was the 20s, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, 23, I want to say. Uh, they uh, sort of made a very convincing case that Homer was originally oral because of these formulaic patterns that occur. Uh, the Orphic hymns were not oral. They, they were definitely not oral. They were definitely written down. Mm -hmm. We know that. Mm -hmm. Uh, they weren't composed orally. There wasn't just a, a bard standing up and reciting the hymn off the top of uh, his or her head. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're written as if they are. They're okay. written in the imitation of that style. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually presented an academic paper on that. Um, Absolutely. Because I think that's, I think that's interesting. That, that, that this is an example of uh, what Foley calls the imitation oral. Uh, the, the attempt to sound like an oral poem without being one. Yeah, that is fascinating as a thought, right? Right, because that's what some magicians try to do as well. <laughs> oh, yes. yeah. 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 Well, I think, the, I think the idea was that would give it a sort of uh, cultural cachet, right? That would give it like a, a cultural power because it sounds like this much older stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, even though it probably was written, well, you know, very late. Um, what that would we, mean, what, 300, something like that? Uh, you know, dating it is hard because it's written in, in uh, the Homeric dialect or an imitation of the yeah. Homeric dialect. Um, I'm kind of convinced by people who suggest it comes from late antiquity, but, you know, I'm open to other evidence. It's just the evidence is yeah. slim. Yeah. Oh, it's actual origin. She's just but, an opinion. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But from a, you know, magical or religious perspective, it's fascinating because you've actually got this liturgy of, you know, we think of like ancient religion as, oh, ancient Greek religion. But actually, ancient Greek religion was a huge umbrella of multiple religions mm -hmm. sharing most of the same gods. Mm -hmm. And here we actually get the liturgy of one of those religions. And in places, it's very weird. It's really hard to pin down what they're getting at. So like the, the phrase, the ox herd, occurs again and again. You know, be kind to the ox herd. Well, who's the ox herd? Mm -hmm. uh, general consensus seems to be it was probably some ritual role in the initiation ceremony. Okay. One of the initiators was the ox herd, um, which maybe that was the person who brought the sacrifices in or something. Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. I, I don't know. We're just speculating. Yeah. 
Um, and then there's also places where hymns are mentioned in, or myths are mentioned in here that don't show up anywhere else okay. uh, in antiquity. Um, there's a, the, the hymn to Milanoi, uh is was really hard to translate because uh, there's some gra- grammatical ambiguity and it's referencing a hymn or it's referencing a myth that we don't really have a record of elsewhere. Okay. And so it's 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 a source that gives us an insight into exactly how various and diverse ancient Greek religion really was. Yeah. Um, that, that we gloss over when we just focus on, you know, Homer and Plato and so forth. Do you personally think that uh, uh, the Alexandrian influence from India and the uh, northern part of, of, of Iran and so were playing a role also in, in that period and with that also maybe in that kind of work like the Orphic Hymns? Oh, absolutely. There, there's a mention of, uh, of which goddess was it? There's a one. There's one goddess in here that is an Anatolian goddess okay. that we have no other record of her being worshipped outside of Anatolia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm drawing a blank currently on who it is. But um, so that yeah, so that I definitely would definitely be that, from that from that movement, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, and I, again, I think you have that fecundity of, of ideas flowing in from multiple areas. Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, uh, eclecticism and syncretism in the Orphic yeah. games. Yeah. Um, and earlier translations, particularly Taylor really obscure that like t- Taylor wanted these to be Neoplatonic. Right. He desperately wanted them to be Neoplatonic. Right. They're not Neoplatonic. Mm. Although there's a bunch of elements of Neoplatonism in them. And then a bunch of elements of Stoicism and Epicureanism. So, like, all these philosophical ideas are informing it that aren't even consistent with each other. That's you can't integrate Stoicism, Neoplatonism, and Epicureanism. You can't integrate those so metaphysically. Very 21st century, in a way. <laughs> yes, exactly. Very postmodern. Yes, postmodern. Like, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So we have one book to go, and I must say, uh, to my shame, that's the only one I do not know of your books. I just know about it, but that's the cartomancy with the Lenormand and the Tarot. I am not sure if it is really the only book that puts the two systems together, but it's one, at least one of the rare books that puts Lenormand and Tarot in one single book. So. Why and uh, well, tell us about that book. Well, I I became interested in the Lenormand. Uh, you know, I've always been interested in the tarot. Um, I used to actually do readings for extra money uh, back in the ancient days, uh, and I uh, really became interested in the Lenormand. I started learning some of the techniques from it. Uh, at the time, there were very few resources in English on the Lenormand. It was much more popular in Europe. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading French and, and Spanish books or trying to. Um, my, my, my vocabulary in French for cardomantic terms is excellent. <laughs> like, Specialist I language. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't order food, but I can definitely read someone's cards uh, in French. Um, but I, I was looking for those resources and I was just annoyed by the lack of them, you know, and so I thought, well, I can read these languages as sort of, so maybe I can put together something for English. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, when this book came out, a whole bunch of other books came out. And frankly, many many of them, I think, do a better treatment of Lenormand than I did. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, um, I like the book, but I think other other books on the Lenormand might be better books for a beginner to start with, I hate to say. 
I should just show my books, but I think there's. <laughs> but you, you, um, you practice both systems, the Lenormand and the Tarot personally? Yes. Where yeah. do you see the, the major difference, if there is? Maybe that's a bad word, but um, I think you know what, what I want to say. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and there is a difference. It's like a, there, there's, a, there's a felt difference. Mm. The, the tarot feels more complex in a mm -hmm. lot of ways. And I don't mean like harder. I mean just there's more in a card mm -hmm. in the tarot than there is in the letter ma. If, if I pull the tower in the tarot, it so much depends on the context when I pull the tower in the tarot. Uh, what's falling down? Mm -hmm. You know, is it something good? Is it something bad? Mm -hmm. What's going on? Mm -hmm. If I pull the tower in the letter ma, Okay, who's in a position of authority over me? You know, where, where's, where's, the, where's the tall building, mm -hmm. right? This is, you know, is that the university or is it the courthouse, right? It's mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a narrower range of meaning for each of the cards, which means that the cards take on more meaning when they're placed in combination. Right. So, you know, if I, if I pull the bear and the tower, it's, okay, who, who's the big powerful one in, in the, the public building? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, that might be my boss, right? Right, <laughs> or, right, right, right. Or that might be But the judge. Does maybe. that make it more easy because it's simpler? Or does that simplicity create more danger to go wrong and therefore makes it more difficult? I think they're about the same level of difficulty. Mm -hmm. I think it's just a different habit of mind that you have to approach each with, which was why I thought it was kind of interesting to combine them mm -hmm. to sort of swing between those two habits of mind. Right. Um, I... I think it's a little easier to get the basics of the Lenormand down mm -hmm. and and do pretty good readings um, right away. But I think it's also, I wouldn't go so far as to say danger, but I think there it's it's easy to uh, look at a Lenormand spread and go, what? Right? For me, it's the danger of tarot for me is always I want to read into it what I want to see. And you can always find a way to do that you know <laughs> with with the, those cards it is very easy sometimes to go oh the tower good that's destroying all those old things in my life mm -hmm. no longer serve me right that's mm -hmm. the, um whereas uh you know you pull i don't know cross and coffin from the Lenormand, there's no good way to spin that yeah. you're worried about dying yeah. you're worried about something ending yeah right? yeah yeah um, yeah, yeah. So, so there is always the way to work around in the tarot that's easier, the, the wishful for thinking either, world for you. Yeah, yeah. The way my mind works. Yeah, yeah. Okay. My mind can find the golden lining. So I like the Lenormand when I'm really worried about something or really emotionally involved in something. Okay. Because when I lay out the Lenormand for that, if I if I can't make sense of it, that tells me there's something in this I probably don't want to see, and so I'm okay. looking for the golden lining that isn't there. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, um, Patrick, uh, we are approaching the end of our talk. So I have to ask you before I let you go, what is your future plans? I think very early in this interview, you mentioned uh, that you were in the process of writing a new book, if I did not get that wrong. Um, so what, what do we expect there? I'm actually in the process of a couple of projects, but the, the one that's most advanced right now that I'm about ready to send as a proposal to my publisher is um, a book that I'm tentatively calling Magic Without BS. Um, they'll probably make me change the title, <laughs> but I thought it might be useful to have a fairly brief guide of various magical topics mm -hmm. that lay out um, you know, how, how, how it works, basic exercises to do it, and then 
what people say about it that is detrimental. So like, for example, with the tarot, people are say people have these notions like you can't buy your own tarot deck. You have to get it gifted to you. Mm -hmm. Well, if you want to do that, that's cool. But if you're telling beginners that it's just it's just an obstacle. They might to wait for 20 years for somebody to offer them a tarot deck. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I, I don't think I, so. It's, it's kind of like trying to take away some of the obstacles to learning yeah. magic and yeah. some of the, the pitfalls of learning magic that sometimes. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it's kind of a tongue in cheek book. Um, at least that's what I'm aiming for in the tone a little bit. So instructional, but also sort of, you know, not taking everything too, too seriously. Yeah. Anything else we you're ready to to uh, reveal or not yet or? Uh, the other stuff is, is pretty, is in early stages of planning. Okay. So, so let's wait a bit and see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I would like to write an introductory book on Hellenic paganism as a religion. Mm -hmm. um, several good ones have just come out, though. So I'm not sure if that's that's going to fly. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. again, I have some things to say about it that not everyone is saying. Well, so the esoteric book market is, is full of new releases. And I, I get the impression that those two years that you just mentioned, even if they made paper rare somehow, but um, the... The new titles have flourished, or is that an impression I have? I don't know. I mean, I think one of the things about the occult book market is when people begin reading occult books, they don't stop. Hmm. No, no one reads one book on magic, goes, I really am into this, and then doesn't read another book on magic. So, you know, true, even yeah. in hard times, the market is there, you know, for, for new yeah, books. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm, I am a huge part of that market. Hmm. Um, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think I've probably spent more books from my publisher than I've ever made in money from them. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell him, don't tell him. <laughs> well, Patrick Dunn, thank you so much for being with us here today on the Thoughts Hermes podcast. It was a lovely talk and we learned a lot and it was great to have you. So good luck for those projects and um, good luck for all the rest in life. And um, I don't know, maybe you have uh, always that hard question, some final word for our audience here? Final words. Oh, I, you know, that, that, that's always hard. I should prepare something very pithy <laughs> to say. Uh, uh, I, you know, at this at this point, uh, after these last couple of years, I guess the, my, my only final words is be kind to yourself and and, and take it easy. Uh, you know, ma magic doesn't have to, to be a source of stress. It can be a source of relief in hard times. Well, that's a good final word, I think. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me.
Hole, H-O-L-E, Hole by Degazette, a Japanese rock band that existed basically from 2002 to 2012. And um, we heard three pieces by them here today. We will find a little bit more about them uh, on the website, uh, which will yes, tell you a bit about their story, right? So thank you so much for being with us here today, for listening to this Episode 24, final episode, season finale of season 7. And I am very happy that Patrick Dunn was with us here today. Thank you, Patrick, once again for a really interesting talk and for being so open and open-minded like most of our guests are here. That's always great. I really like it when we can really talk about everything and people are opening themselves and teaching us so many things through that. Um, very grateful to all our guests here who do that. And well, I I honestly think almost everybody has done so far. Great. Well, that's the end of the show and that's the end of the season. And yes, I know I promised you to tell you who is my guest on the season opener of season eight. That will happen in two weeks from today. Exactly. So on February the 27th, so no new show next Sunday. It's always one week break now between two seasons. And season eight opens with, ta-ta, Anton LaVey. Well, not him, really. Um, he is, well, in a way he is there as well because he is, really, well, I don't tell you all about it, but Carl Abrahamson has just re very recently, well, it's actually, the official release will only be a week after our show, but you can already pre-order and see what the book looks and have excerpts and so. So Carl Abrahamson has written an excellent book on Anton LaVey. And um, so we are going to discuss that book and Anton LaVey. And it's really, I think, going to be highly interesting. Many of you will like that idea very well. And those of you who are a bit skeptical about LaVey, probably partly for the right reasons, but um, you should listen because Carl is a very, has a very personal and very scholarly approach at the same time. So it's really going to be a nice talk. I've already recorded it, so I know what's coming. Okay, good. So see you in two weeks. You're going to hear me talking to Carl Abrahamson. Until then, well, stay healthy and safe. I hope things are becoming better now also in your country. They become here slowly but steadily. And um, But individually, I hope that all of you are really healthy and safe and re or recovering or at least not being very sick. I really hope so. Okay, stay like that and stay tuned. No, the other way around. Take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.